The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. I want to mention a great resource for writers, and this month's sponsor, Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. I'll expound later in the show, but the short version is this long-awaited book about the craft of creative writing from New York Times bestselling author Steve Almond sets out to debunk the well-meaning but misguided myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and most honest work. Pick up a copy today of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, wherever you buy books, more soon. Greetings, scribes. I have got some exciting news to share. The Writer Files now has an exclusive Patreon community where subscribers will get exclusive access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and content from productivity and publishing experts each month. In the meantime, just head over to patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. Help us start something special. Greetings, scribes. This week's episode of The Writer Files is brought to you by New Media Dojo. Thinking about starting a podcast or just want to up your sound quality? Make a sound impression with New Media Dojo and inquire today about all of your podcast production needs. Just head over to NewMediaDojo.com to talk podcast. That's NewMediaDojo.com. The thing I love most about the novel is it's the most democratic to me of all art forms because you sit down to write and you've got just as much chance of finishing as anybody else because there's tons of short story writers who are amazing who have gone on to try to do a novel, not like it's harder, it's just different, and gotten lost at sea, you know, and it is its own thing. And so... I think anybody who sits down has just as much chance as anybody else of finishing. And so to me, that's democratized. But I did not, you don't know until you finish that you can do it. And welcome back to The Writer Files. This is your grateful host, Kelton Reed, wishing you pages, patience, and perseverance per usual. Award-winning author and essayist Vanessa Veselka dropped by to talk about her transformation as an artist, writing out of necessity, and the journey from nervy debut to National Book Award long list. Vanessa is the author of the debut novel Zazen, which won the Penn Award in 2012, and her second novel, The Great Offshore Grounds, was long listed for the National Book Award for Fiction 2020 and winner of the Ken Kesey Award for Fiction. The book's been described by author Roxane Gay as a magnificent beast of a novel, one of the rare novels that understands the realities of American poverty, and was named one of the 10 best books of 2020 by Vulture. Vanessa's short stories have appeared in Tin House and Ziziva, and her nonfiction in GQ, The Atlantic, Smithsonian, and been included in Best American Essays, among others. In this file, Vanessa and I discussed suffering in the itinerant life of an artist, the novel as democratic art form, why writers need to stand their ground and tap their intuition, how to find magic in your writing process, protecting your most productive time, and a lot more. Stay calm and write on. If you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click follow to automatically see new interviews in your podcatcher as soon as they're published. And please drop us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to help other writers find us. All right, we are back on The Writer Files. I am honored today to be joined by 
the novelist and writer Vanessa Visalka. Thanks so much for taking the time to do this today. How are you uh, surviving there in Portland, Oregon? <laughs> I'm surviving well. Um, you know, I think like everybody else, you know, the pandemic, the social unrest, the you know, the the crisis that's sort of unfolding forward uh, mm. is exhausting. But given all of those things, I'm living like a queen. <laughs> Well, yes, I can't wait to talk about your current reign, but uh, let's get into all the, the great things that have been going on. Before we talk about um, your latest and some of the more critical acclaim of late, let's talk a little bit about your superhero origins as an author, because I understand that you came to kind of creative writing a little bit later in your life yes um but have had like this of course this fantastic life of a um itinerant artist and and musician and you know kind of done all these uh, you know you've lived a full life it sounds like but you know sometimes artists have to suffer for their art but yeah talk about how you got talk about how you got here and maybe how you came to zazen and this you know kind of breaking onto the scene with this nervy debut that was a you know, uh, an award winner and, and how you, how, then how you got here. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's a whole bunch of things. I know. I'm In sorry. terms of people <laughs> suffering for their art, you know, people suffer for all sorts of things. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that, you know, what people need, and we'll talk more about this probably, but like, you know, if you're an artist or you're a writer, you know, the most important thing is that you have human sensitivity. And so, you know, that, and that, you know, a lot of different kinds of people. So human sensitivity, I mean, that's the, that's the main thing. And some people are born with a lot of human sensitivity and some people have less and learn more, you know? Um, I think that uh, writing was always something that I did in terms of a pragmatic and functional thing. Uh, my mom was a writer. My dad wrote stories at one point, less so when I knew him. Um, but there was always this value on writing, but I treated it like, um, it was my number one get out of jail free card, which was, I used my writing primarily to get out of trouble or to get something that I wasn't qualified to get that I really wanted. Um, you know, so my writing was largely, uh, you know, a brief for the defense, uh, or making the case. <laughs> and, uh, and that was how I, I functioned as a writer. Um, but I did keep journals since I was five, uh, which is very early to start keeping journals. And so writing was always around me, but it wasn't my focus. It was not my career and it was not the art I was trying to use to achieve anything. I was, um, very, very interested, you know, as a teenager, early teens in theater and things, but always in music. So music was really, the first art form that I threw everything in my heart into and worked really hard at. And I think that, um, not like you're asking, but I'll go ahead and say, <laughs> I think that um, there's a real lift that people who switch art forms get. Mm -hmm. um, if you switch, you know, you would think of all, all the musicians who were art students, you know, Brian Eno and, uh, and David Byrne, but also many, many, many others. And I think that you get this incredible lift when you have an artistic process and you know yourself really well, and then you switch genres to where your expectations are low, but your skill set at getting something 
is high and you can do something in simpler terms that just hits the mark sometimes. So Mm -hmm. I I think I'm kind of jumping ahead. So superhero origins. Um, (laughs) Yes, I've worked a lot of jobs. I left home at 15. I traveled around a lot and then I lived, you know, I traveled and lived in Turkey in the late 80s and um, as a teenager, late teens. And also traveled and lived in the former, you know, Eastern Bloc at different times, mostly Yugoslavia, which is kind of on the middle, Hmm. um, before the war. And then in Vienna um, for a period of time in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. And then, um, you know, so I've sort of always moved and always traveled and always met a variety of different people. I've worked a lot of different jobs. And uh, all that goes into human sensitivity and all of that goes into seeing a bigger world. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting with the name Vanessa Veselka that you didn't become a spy novelist because it's such a great name. <laughs> Yet. Yet. <laughs> yeah. or, maybe, or maybe you were a spy in the uh, Eastern yeah. Bloc. The- you know, I would have loved to have worked for the CIA if they <laughs> weren't the imperialist (laughs) overthrowing of other small democracies and killing people type. I mean, if there was some kind of spy agency for good, you know, that was effective and allowed you to uh, (laughs) be a polyglot and glide across the planet, I'd probably have gone in that direction. So you used your powers for good and you turned your lens to, I don't know, the, the, prescience of this first novel which was kind of examining some of the last guests of like late stage capitalism but also predicted a lot of things that we've been seeing in the last few years um yes how does it feel looking back on uh this fantastic debut zazen now which has been re-released uh in paperback congratulations thank you on that rebirth but yeah i mean this is such a, a, a lauded debut and then of course to win a pen award and and you know curated by Lauren Groff nonetheless and some of your fantastic colleagues but um yeah how, how what was how did that feel did that did you have a kind of a sense of like whoa like um a lot of writers talk about this kind of imposter syndrome with that like breakthrough um success of a debut novel was there no. some of that <laughs> I didn't have an imposter syndrome with it. I think that I was very much, you know, years of doing indie music and other things. I, like many of that generation, had really come to sort of, I think one of the things DIY culture did was it took the emphasis off institutional um, praise Mm -hmm. and attention and onto the process um, and the making of something. That, that simply the making of something was worthy. And so I was very focused on that writing Zazen. I mean, I was writing it of necessity, you know, psychological necessity to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was learning as I went, right? You know, it was I mean, the thing I love most about the novel is it's the most democratic to me of all art forms because you sit down to write and you've got just as much chance of finishing as anybody else because there's tons of short story writers who are amazing who have gone on to try to do a novel, not like it's harder, it's just different, and gotten lost at sea, you know? Oh, yeah. And it is its own thing. And so 
I think anybody who sits down has just as much chance as anybody else of finishing. And so to me, that's democratizing. But I did not, you don't know until you finish that you can do it, right? There's something remarkable about finishing a novel. So, you know, I didn't know I was going to be able to finish Zazen until the last pages, literally. And, hmm. and so I think that the making of it, the finishing of it, I knew how much work went into it. I had honed my thinking and I was, I was deeply, you know, I had a deep conviction in the work I was doing. Um, doesn't mean I thought it was flawless, but it was like, I knew it was, I mean, my goal at the time, you know, and I really had had to, I'm kind of cerebral. So I like, I really did formulate this very consciously in my mind at the time was, what do I want? Well, I want somebody who picks up my work and I learned this doing Zazen and they read some of it, like, you know, in a manuscript form who doesn't like it, just sort of toss it on the table and say, that is definitely not my thing. <laughs> That is very different than just saying, this is terrible. Mm -hmm. I want it to be, so the difference to me is something has to be so completely itself that it's recognized as being like, I hate that kind of stuff, or it's not my thing, or like, it has its own integrity in a different way, which is, it is itself. So my goal was to write Zazen as itself, and it wasn't as attached to whether or not anybody else was going to like it. I, I always come from this point of like, it's my job, you know, to write it the thing, the way I think it should be written. And it's your job to not want to buy it, <laughs> you know, if that's mm -hmm. how you feel. But emotionally, though, that doesn't speak to the need for interaction that I think artists have in that shows up in various ways. So I finished, I felt good about finishing. I did want to then try to find a place to put it out. That was a much more difficult process. Um, but by the time I had gotten, and I got lots of feedback of people wanting me to really change the book. And, and mm -hmm. a lot of things that was, I don't get this character. You know, we never see what really makes her tick. Because the idea that a female character could be on fire with ideas and emotion and driven a lot by ideas is, you know, was more so at the time, a way of sort of saying, you weren't getting to the real stuff. You weren't really getting to like, you know, when, when does she cry and what does she cry about? And what is the deep biography that leads to this kind of intensity? Um, and so there was, Adela was read by, you know, quite a few people as sort of being, we never really get to know her. You know, the plot, I, I heard the novel has no plot um, multiple hmm. times. And that led me into an investigation. I was like, how, so what is plot, right? Like I, I still run into this. What, what is plot? And I, I really came down to, and this is, I'm going to stand by this in large part. Plot is love story. When I really went back and looked at novels and I look at what people think of as things happen, but plot is love story. That's what mm -hmm. drives things forward in most novels. Now that love story may be buried in one thing or another and it but it's the it's the driving force it's a connection between two people that's usually romantic and zazen doesn't have that in that way and mm -hmm. um so you know i mean it, it, it but you could argue that della has that kind of tor you know torrential tormented love relationship with the world and that forms the love story hmm. but you know so i went through all sorts of trying to figure out what was why Zazen didn't seem to 
why nobody was interested in putting it out. Why, you know, and then I finally met, um, you know, somebody, uh, Jay Babcock from Arthur who put it online and then, um, later Richard Nash who put it on Red Lemonade. And, uh, those were the first sort of champions I had in the industry and then winning the pen award. Definitely. It, it was sort of a cult word of mouth book. Hmm. And then winning the pen award made a real difference too. Earlier in the show, I mentioned an invaluable resource for writers. Truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow. A DIY manual for the construction of stories based on three decades of writing, failing, and trying again. Author Steve Almond is a beloved professor at Harvard and Wesleyan and the acclaimed New York Times bestseller of 12 books of fiction and nonfiction. And in Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, Steve employs the radical empathy he displayed as a co-host of the Dear Sugars podcast with Cheryl Strayed, where they explored the joys and trials of storytelling to explode myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and truest work. The book includes chapters on plot, character, and chronology, but travels far beyond the earnest intentions of most craft books. It also includes writing prompts to generate new work. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Richard Russo called it one of the best books on writing he's ever read, and also the funniest. Pick up a copy of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories wherever you buy books and add it to your TBR today. And just a quick aside to revisit the exclusive Writer Files Patreon community where subscribers get access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and a lot more. I know that for serious writers, it can be more distracting than ever to cut through the noise, stay productive, and home in on what's happening in the publishing industry. Over eight years, we've provided a looking glass into the habits of professional writers and publishing industry insiders. And as your humble host, I've decided to launch a membership-based Patreon for serious scribes to cut through the noise, swap tips and tricks, and hang out with like-minded peers. Just head over to patreon.com slash the writer files for bonus writing resources, monthly episode breakdowns, writer's happy hour, a community of your peers, ad-free episodes, and more. It's free to join to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash the writer files. Help us start something cool and special. Keep calm and write on. Interesting. And so now with the, um, release of the great offshore grounds and the critical acclaim um being long listed for the national book award I could talk a little bit about that journey because you know you you've changed as a as a person you've changed as a writer but the world has changed dramatically yes and no <laughs> yeah and yes and no yeah and and certainly again we talk about the kind of the prescience of zazen with you know obviously i think live you personally living in a politically tumultuous city there you know given everything that's happened with the social justice movement and then of course you know these these uh clashes that we've all seen kind of videos of with the with the right wingers and the oath keepers and whatnot in that in that very liberal stronghold i've, I've lived in portland and it's a, just an amazing um amazingly diverse and and fascinating place but yeah talk about like how how all of these things kind of maybe have fed into your latest and 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 now how are you changing now that that's been released you probably finished the great offshore grounds you know a couple of years ago right yeah i did prior to to a lot of this uh <laughs> dystopian stuff that's happening still yeah i mean i think ultimately i never considered zazen although i i realize i've lost this argument i ne i've never considered zazen dystopian because to me it was 
what I saw around me at the time. Mm. I think that, um, again, going back to the question of sensitivity, the language that is used in the book to me, the world that was created by Zazen, uh, was not a world yet to come as much as it was a world that was in existence, but not named. Mm. You know, and that's a question of sensitivity. Like, what is a bomb? You know, is right. a bomb uh, a car, you know, backfiring? Is a bomb a door slamming? Is a bomb an explosion? Well, if you're the person hearing it and you can't tell, it's a bomb, right? And that's sort of like some of where I think Zazen lives is, you know, there is this killing of, of unarmed black men through a series in a, in a white gentrifying neighborhood and a, a series of, you know, um, there's a police riot and like all these other things that are going on. Um, and it was before Black Lives Matter when I wrote all this stuff, but Black Lives Matter didn't start that stuff, you know? And right. so I think that what's really changed is the degree to which it has become ubiquitous and that like the conversation I think Della was having with herself in the novel is one that you would commonly find uh, on a street corner in most cities now. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a big difference. But for now, and like you going through, I think Zazen was very much, and I do not know, I mean, for, the, for some reason, all week this name has escaped me and I should have looked it up. The when the Chechnyan uh, fighters took over, uh, they blew up that school of three hundred mm -hmm. kids in in Russia. Bezlan, uh, I think Zazen was very informed by Bezlan. Hmm. It was deeply informed um, by that. And then following its publication, there was a really, really deep because the question for me in Bezlan was, I can understand how you can intellectually come to an insurgency movement that does X, Y, or Z that equates one thing with another. But when you're then in the moment of looking at a seven-year-old and going, I'm going to blow all these kids up, like, where does the, why doesn't the abstraction fade? Why doesn't it fail? Like, how do you make that leap? And I think that that's some of what Della can't understand or tries to under, tries to put together at mm. different times. But like that sort of sense of of not understanding definitely fueled Zazen. So with the Great Offshore Grounds is very different. First of all, it took me a long time to write. And I did set out to try to write, you know, a big novel. Uh, and, you know, the novels I loved so much that it meant the most to me have always been like the 19th century, early 20th century novels. And what I love about them is they deal with like death and class and status and where you belong in the world and, and sort of a story framework a lot of times that is a little more episodic in some ways, but then also tracking of huge characters. They're just not afraid to contend with the big, sort of big human themes. So you always end up with families in them for sure because of that kind of, that search for family, that search for status, you know, and there are elements like the reading of the will and like <laughs> you know, the, the uncertain parentage and all of these things that the Great Offshore Ground has, right? But I was thinking very much about this moment in time, this world, what does it mean to be both on land that came out of a terrible history of, you know, genocide and, and slave labor, and yet to be born on it, you know, you, you are inextricably linked. And at the same time, you are also born with your own breath in your own body in your own place and time. And, um, 
I wanted it to be a very American story in that sense of, of those things constantly happening. I think that with Zazen, the politics are very out front. You know, I've been asked before and, uh, you know, which about polit- writing about politics. Mm-hmm. And the politics in Zazen are very upfront because Della is very, very uh, embedded in left culture mm-hmm. um, and has been raised in it. You know, the characters in Offshore Grounds, I would say in many ways it's a more political novel, but it's not because the characters are political. So yeah. I think I think there's a more sadness and more, um, but also more... Um, I would have said until very recently that there was more anger in Zazen and there was more like longing and sadness. There's humor in both, a lot of humor, mm-hmm. uh, but there's more longing and sadness, you know, that underpins offshore grounds. And now I would change that. I read from Zazen for the first time in 10 years, a uh, week and a half mm-hmm. ago. And because of the difference of how much uh, emotional weight and scarring people have right now from these last years, I would say the last eight years in particular, when I read the first part of Zazen again, it was very different than when I read it back in the day. Back in the day, it had this kind of like, you know, I could read it and I could fill the room with a kind of like crackling uncertainty about what was going to happen and like this sort of a bit of foreboding. And when I read it, I could feel the grief. Hmm. And it was so different. So the comedy in the book, because there's a lot of it, will probably feel different because it's now not set in with fear and anxiety, but set in with grief. I'll never have that experience. Um, Whereas I don't think that the offshore grounds I think it has more of this, like, um, there's this concept, it's a Hasidic concept called the laughter of the last day, which is, you know, when all your plans have failed, when you might die on this day, you've stepped off the cliff, you have no idea, you know, are you in the darkness, can you laugh? And the laughter of the last day is about, like, just physical joy bubbling up into the moment, like that moment of being alive like and i think there's actually more of that in offshore grounds than i had thought before too Hmm. that's pretty fascinating hey i just want to take a quick break to remind listeners that you can now sign up for the writer files extra email newsletter and have new episodes delivered straight to your inbox i'm sending added insights links to curated collections of shows and the first shot at writer files merch Sign up today at writerfiles.fm. You'll find the Writer Files extra sign-up form, a link to the show, archives, and more about my indie podcast production company, New Media Dojo. Just type writerfiles.fm into your browser, and I'll drop that link in the show notes. I'd also like to ask for your continued support to help keep this show going. As the sole host and producer of the show, it's been largely a labor of love these last few years. And through the generosity of listeners like you, we can get back to a regular weekly slate of interviews. And a huge shout out to those of you who recently donated. I'm moved by the outpouring of support, both large and small. So when you sign up for the free email newsletter at writerfiles.fm, you'll see a donate button there. 
to securely support the show through PayPal. Every donation, no matter the size, makes a big difference. If we provide content to you that is valuable in any way, please consider a one-time or small monthly donation. If you want the newsletter, info about merch, to support the show and learn more about starting your own podcast, go to writerfiles.fm. Thank you, as always. Back to the show. Would you describe yourself as, I don't know, when when you're kind of just discussing that kind of cultural sensitivity or empathy that goes into your work, would you describe yourself as, because when you, when you talk about doing a reading in a room and kind of sensing the, 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 you know, this feeling of grief, are you kind of like a, attuned to, you know, psychic? Do I have a strong intuition? Yeah. Is that, is, are you picking up on people's energy um, oh, yeah. in interactions like that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I actually stopped right after I read that section and said, you can feel, can you feel the sadness? And somebody started crying and talking like it's, it's just, yeah. I mean, I think that's a combination of things. And I think it's really common. Some of it is like, if you grow up in situations or you find yourself in situations in life that like are, are violent or scary or unpredictable or, you know, any number of things, you know, you will develop the kind of hypervigilance that, uh, keeps you safe. Right. Mm-hmm. And it works for and against you. People who can be naturally sensitive and intuitive. And I don't discount the possibility of knowing things that we don't know how we know them. I've seen it happen. But I think there's all this communication that's always happening that we just, you know, you can't hear it in the air and you can't see it written down, but it's always going on from body language to heartbeats to, you know, to every other tiny bit of information we're gathering. But also, I don't see why it does not seem to me far-fetched that, you know, I think there've been a lot of, I've heard over the years, you know, there are different kinds of studies and when people start to dance, how their heartbeats start to sink, you know, like Mm. their rhythms start to sink a lot of times. I think that's just a human thing. Yeah. And, um, and so I think to to be disconnected from that and to think that it's not possible or woo-woo or strange to be able to feel what's happening in a room. I mean, my answer is more like, how could you not feel what was happening in that room? <laughs> mm-hmm. I think where it's tricky is that depending on how you've learned those things or how you interpret them, it doesn't mean your read is right. And it also doesn't mean that your read is, I'll give you an example just to be very plain about it. There was somebody earlier on in my life who was very violent. I became very sensitized to a certain kind of like violent impulse. And I have had the experience over the years as an adult of meeting somebody and feeling in a very short moment like they have that that impulse. Mm. But I don't know if they've ever acted on it. Now, my mind tells me danger, stay away, don't trust, you know, all those things. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't even know if they know it. Like I have to have the moment, you know, I have to both trust my instincts and also know that I don't know, you know, that um, people have capacities for all sorts of things they don't act on. And I also overread. So I feel like I'm a sensitivity meter, but I feel like I'm a kind of broken sensitivity meter that everything is just turned up really loud for me. (laughs) You know, so like what I don't read well is range. You know, I, I, I it's I, I only have the red part of the meter. 
know. <laughs> Turned up really loud. Well, how how would you describe your writing process now as you've matured as a writer and obviously you made that pivot to some pretty um just really evocative and visceral prose. Well, thank you. After being a musician. Yeah. And so how do you now kind of you know, as you're probably pondering or presently working on a third novel um or other or other works, how do you how do you now get attuned to that writing process and kind of what's your most what are you finding is your most successful way of approaching the desk? Oh yeah. So I do have a really strong writing process at this point. And I want to say something about that, which is, you know, whether people go to MFA programs, whether they learn through practice, um, whatever the methods or, or listening to podcasts, trying different things, the most, the only thing you can get from anybody else is ideas to experiment on your own writing process. And I think that that's the goal. The goal should be, in my opinion, the goal should be, how do I find out what my writing process is? The magic's not on the page. The magic's in the process. Like in terms of like, you know, the spell you're looking for is the spell that gives you the process. And so once you get to where you know your process and you start to work within it, your output changes a lot. And I'll give you really concrete examples. There are writers who write, and you will know all these things. There are binge writers, and there are writers who write daily. There are writers who write really super fast and get to first drafts really fast. And there are writers who like sort of like tinker all the way through. There, it's like, but there are writers who, I think one thing that often gets missed, there are writers who write in the morning and writers who write in other times of the days. And I think the time of day is actually one of the most profound process points, Hmm. which is, you know, I'm so sick of people telling single moms who have, you know, who are carrying enormous workloads, they're supposed to get up at four in the morning and write for an hour. And and, and then hearing them like feel like failures because they can't. I'm so sick of that. Right. I mean, you do, if you want to write and you have to write now, you do what you have to do to do it in all respect to that. However, to expect yourself to be able to just do that is unkind. I think f- matching the process to the to the form. So let me to put in concrete terms. So I'm a morning writer. That means I don't care if I get up at 4 p.m., which I don't usually because I'm mostly a morning person. But if I got up at 4 p.m., I'd be a 4 p.m. morning writer. <laughs> I write in the first five hours of the day. Everything I get after that is weaker, takes twice as long, and I'll probably have to redo. Um, Hmm. So those first hours are critical for me to get my best work. So I work around those hours. And so that's meant over the years working a lot of evening shifts, swing shifts, uh, in you know restaurants. I wrote night shift driving cab, which was not a great job for me, but I did it for a while. But like I really worked my schedule around my thinking at the time was like, I want, because I did this with music first, right? So I want my early morning days free um, to write. And then you can get the half of my mind that can't do that kind of stuff later because it's just an act of the body, (laughs) you know, a lot Mm -hmm. of times. And you can't always do that, right? Um, But 
to the extent that you can, don't work against your process, work with it, but you have to experiment to figure out what it is. So if you, most everybody I know, if you ask them, when are you most productive? They know. So there's late night people. There's, you know, all sorts of things, but like, then protect that time. That's step one. If you can protect that time, work around that time. Um, the other thing, and that's very hard for moms early, you know, if they've got small kids because of the timing and everything. So maybe if you are a morning writer, maybe you do get up earlier, but the idea that like, you're supposed to not sleep, not do this, not do that to just be like, you know, I see women attacking their discipline and Hmm. instead of like the system of rearing children alone with insufficient funding and, and support, so I think the first thing is figure out what time you're most productive. Now, it doesn't mean you don't write in those other times, but that you have a different system of capturing ideas. So another idea is um, if you know that you're really productive in the morning and you don't have that time free, carry a little notebook, write down single lines. You know, to get all I need personally to get into writing, to go from like sort of staring at a blank play- page to actually like writing a lot is a sentence. I need one sentence. I need a way in. So sometimes that sentence will occur to me when I'm just walking around. And so if you don't have time to sit down and write and have that time regularly, always keep something with you and just try to think of one sentence and do a couple of those because they're keys to get into something. And I, so the way I worked when I'm working long form, like novels, is anything that I do in the morning is going to be, I'm going to take my trickiest problems there. That's where my mind is going to be at its best. Um, my trickiest problems would be starting completely from scratch, like generation, untangling or working through something that's really in trouble, any place I'm sort of banging my head against a wall. I'm going to bring all of those things into that space. Anything that's kind of uh, brushing something up, uh, editorial, anything that's kind of like, I know where I have to go for maybe, you know what I mean? Like those kinds of things that don't take as much creativity and and extreme focus. Mm -hmm. I can do those in the afternoon. I can do those at other times. So it's, it's not that you only work in one time, but that you try to suit the time to the, what you need. So one thing is time. Another thing is, you know, you have to know if you're a sporadic binge writer or you, you need a really daily process. And I think the other thing is the question of draft. Like, are you someone who writes a big draft fast or are you somebody who sort of tinkers through slowly? What is your relationship to planning or not planning? I don't like to plan. I don't like to know what's about to happen because I need that curiosity to pull me through years of work. Hmm. So I think that's, those are the big things about process. Yeah. Well, we appreciate your wisdom and of course uh i'll point at your home base there which is vanessa vaselka.com you are on on the socials I'll, I'll point at your twitter instagram facebook yeah congratulations on the latest and of course the nominations uh i thought what roxanne gay said about the book was very nice yes she called it a magnificent beast of a novel utterly engrossing original and one of the rare novels that understands the realities of american poverty um and she called it epic which has to be nice some of your peers uh, have some other very nice things to to say patrick dewitt 
said he'd been waiting for this novel for years. Um, <laughs> and that was well worth the wait. That was sweet of him. Um, of course, I'll link to all these things and the fantastic work. Uh, is there anywhere else you want to point listeners before we kind of wrap up with your advice to fellow scribes? No, not really. Not really. You know, I mean, I, I'm a person of, you know, maybe it's a caveat. I'm a person of very strong opinions, <laughs> but it also is just my opinion. And and it, it matters like chaff in the wind, you know what I mean? <laughs> so <laughs> I think uh, trying to hold both of those things <laughs> when I'm asked for any form of advice, um, I have this, uh, it, it is a gift and a curse that the way I speak sounds very authoritative a lot of times, <laughs> even when I don't know what I'm talking about. I have, you know, if I walked into a hangar and said, I don't think that the work you're doing on that engine is going to make it fly. There would be people who would turn around and ask me why. And, you know, I just have to, I feel like I should have a sign of it. It's like, it's just a voice thing. Like, it's just, <laughs> um, so, you know, I can come, I can say things very emphatically that I don't always hold that emphatically. Um, so, you know, bear with me on those things. <laughs> well, we appreciate your insight and your wisdom. Um, oh, I forgot to ask you one quick fun one. If you could have any, uh, author for dinner to any, from any era oh. to your favorite spot in the world, who would you take and where would you take them? Oh my God. You're asking me this on the spot. I didn't know. <laughs> you know, it would be between Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. And, um, you can bring both. I mean, they'd probably, I don't think they'd be, it. no, because no. we'd have to have different kinds of conversations. Okay. So if it was Tolstoy, I really, I have, <laughs> I have two different lines of questioning. One, one about like his relationship, you know, sort of the, his incredible belief that if you really understand somebody, you can never hate them, which is core to all of his work and whether he really, really believes that, but also just that, how, how did he get to that point? I'm curious about that. But then I'm also curious about like, Hey, wait a minute. You know, your wife had like 13 kids and copied over War and Peace five times by hand and wrote in her <laughs> journals about what a genius you were all the time. And then you like <laughs> left her to get in, to hang out in a train station to find God. Like, what the hell were you thinking? You know what I mean? Like, there's that. And then, you know, anyway, so there's, there's like all of those things I'd ask him with Dostoevsky. I would ask him if he, Razumikin in Crime and Punishment is so funny. The, the discussion, I didn't realize it the first time. First time when you read Crime and Punishment, you're like totally on like what's happening and the murder and the this and the what's, how's it going to go? And it's like dark and it's intense and it's vibrant. If you go back and read it right afterwards, it's full of humor. It's hilarious. Mm. And Razumikin in particular is, is just sort of poking fun at Raskolnikov. And you can... Mm almost hear Dostoevsky making fun of himself and those tendencies in a really um, beautiful and light way. I don't think he's given credit for, for his humor, the way Kafka wasn't. So I'd like to go back, setting aside all the sort of pan-Slavic uh, problematic stuff. I'd like to go back and ask him about that. And where would you take them? Or you might take them different places. I would take them different places. Where would I take Dostoevsky? I mean, I would want them in their element. So for Dostoevsky, we'd have to be sitting in a museum next to the, was it, 
Paris or somewhere in France where he saw that painting of Christ decomposing that obsessed him for years. Hmm. Because I think that would be, it would be that or a bar. I think with uh, Tolstoy, you know, this is such a, like, I feel like I'm answering this in this question in the most like banal, boring way. Um, With Tolstoy, you know, (laughs) like I would just take him anywhere off of his plantation. I know they don't call them plantations in that, but that was a plantation. Like I would take him anywhere out of that setting to have a conversation. It doesn't get to be in a train station and it doesn't get to be on his land. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Perfect. Yes. Well, we do appreciate your time and I know you have to get going. Uh, if you had one pearl of wisdom for your fellow scribes and just how to persevere through the, uh, through the tough times, what, what would you drop on them? Everybody, so many times people brought, try to bring something to, to the world that they think reflects their entire understanding of what is valuable and needed. Bring yourself to the world. That's valuable and needed. I think that when we make work, to make it as much as possible its own thing and bring that, it's just so essential. And I think that sometimes a book is for two people, and maybe it saves those two people's lives. You don't know. I don't know. I know. I I know the Great Offshore Grounds is for somebody. I know Zazim is for somebody. I don't. I didn't know if it was going to be ten people or a hundred people, and I think that's where the humility comes in. But the work is to just don't compromise. Bring it the way you want to bring it. I mean, I'll add one thing. My process, as I have been, you know, told by many people, like with both books, like this book is not, you know, all the problems, right, and. I remember thinking at one point, I switched how I framed that in my head. You know, it wasn't like this book is a mess, this book is in trouble, this book is this, this book is that. I was like, I really switched it to like, what did I do that made that person, made you think that this was that kind of book? <laughs> right? <laughs> So it was a way of editorial, of like, like, what did I do? How did I not cue you in earlier that this was not that kind of book? And so I'm like always trying, I, I guess that sounds really, maybe that's too diffuse to have any meaning, but in, in trite in other ways, but I really do think writers compromise too much. And mm. And I think the whole writing industry, the MFA programs, the critical industry around it, a lot of those things, I think one of the reasons is I think that they, there are so many women in it. The novel's always been tied to women. And that sort of you're supposed to take everybody's opinions. And if you push back at all, you know, you're a problem. That culture is so deep in writing. And it, I just say, like, it's just unacceptable. <laughs> it's just unacceptable. Mm. I, I just see people, particularly women writers, just like, just take it as gospel that somebody knows more than them. Nobody mm-hmm. knows more than you. It may mean you don't get read. You know what I mean? Like, maybe there's one person, maybe there's a hundred people, maybe there's a thousand people that you're writing for. You don't know. But just, 
Don't give up so easily. Yeah. I love that. Stand your, stand your ground. That's my. Yeah. And, you know, I've heard it said that um, kind of taking those uh, early criticisms of your work and, as you said, not compromising and standing your ground, but actually really kind of honing those as, as um, you know, part of your voice as opposed to stuffing them down or not letting them be be expressed. Yeah, a, a lot of times a critique that is given to you is actually coming from you not taking something far enough. Exactly. Something that you're doing that seems like it's slipping in. A lot of times the fix is put it in at 110% and yeah. see what happens. Love that. Well, thank you so much, Vanessa, for your inspiration and, and your invaluable intuitions and insight <laughs> uh, into this uh, thing that we really are still trying to figure out here. But yeah, come back and, and hang with us again sometime. And uh, congrats on the latest. Can't wait to see what's next and, and uh, read more of your work. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of The Writer Files. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to the show and leave us a rating or a review to help other writers out there find us. You can always leave a comment or a question and visit the entire archives at writerfiles.fm. And you can chat with me on Twitter at Kelton Reed. Cheers. Talk to you next week. 